I apologize if the wind makes a bunch of noise on this recording, but this is how I do this, off the cuff. This isn't even a professional podcast. This is just an audio diary that I happen to be throwing up on the internet for the heck of it. I'm at a dog park right now watching my dog play with two other dogs. My dog is a tall, lanky, majestic, 83-pound Siberian Husky with the energy level of a nuclear reactor. He's actually so fast it scares me sometimes. His friends, his two little buddies that he's playing with right now, are two short, fat little Chinese pugs. And I think one of them is pretty old. My buddy, he is doing somersaults between these two pugs, flopping on his back and pawing at them from his back. And they're uh, doing these cute little hops and doing what I'm sure they feel is, is darting around and jumping and dodging, which really is just jiggling in one direction or another. <clears throat> it's kind of sad but adorable I can actually hear their snorty breathing from here I hope he doesn't get them too excited anyway that's not what we're here to talk about well, he uh, is playing with his two friends. I'm going to take some laps around this dog park and ramble, hopefully somewhat coherently, about a few things involving the Don't Say Gay Bill. Three things, to be exact. Number one, the fact that kindergarten through third grade is not too early to learn about, well, the existence of uh, LGBTQ people. That's number one. Number two... That will be the other reasons why the Don't Say Gay Bill is so damaging. And the third thing is why they're really doing this. And I'll give you a hint now, it's not about homophobia, not really. But first, anecdotal experience is one of those things that people use in debates that doesn't really work. Even if it is true, which it often isn't, it's just their personal experience. It may not be representative of any larger data set. That's just their experience. But I'm a gay guy, and I know a lot of other gay guys. And I have known in the past lots of other gay guys. And I've talked with many of them about when they first realized they were gay. As someone who waited until he was 34 to come out like I did, that's a question I've asked people a lot. For me, it was when I was six years old, when I first realized that there was something different about me. I didn't know what being gay was. And it's the same for almost everyone else I've talked to. At that age, you don't know what being gay is. You just know that something is different about you. 
And I have a theory about why so many of us had this realization at six years old. That's when kids start kindergarten. Prior to that, I mean, yeah, kids see other kids prior to that. Kids from the neighborhood, maybe they're cousins, maybe they're brothers and sisters. But it's a small number of kids, and it's usually for a much shorter period of time than a school day. So for most of us, that's the first time we've ever had other kids to compare ourselves to. How do you know you're different if you're not even exposed to the people you're different from? It could be that we would be having these realizations even sooner. Who knows? About halfway through my kindergarten year, I realized that I had a great affection for my new best friend, Andy. He was the only one I wanted to play with at recess, and I realized when I came home from school, while all of the other kids were excited to be getting back home and playing with their pets and their video games and toys, I was sad because the school day was over, Andy was going home and I was going home. Unless it was one of those really awesome, amazing days, like those Fridays where I got to go over to his house and spend the night. We'd watch movies, play video games, and mostly we made these really cringy, embarrassing little comic books together. I don't even know if I would want to see them now. I'm sure they're terrible. At one point, Andy's mom saw our work and thought it was really violent and said, uh, why don't you make a comic about Jesus? I mean, we were going to Catholic school and we came from households steeped in Catholicism, so. Yeah. But that's... That's enough of a digression about that. You know, I had seen lots of cartoons, lots of movies and stuff. Plenty of relationships in those stories. Always between a man and a woman, so... What was happening to me, I didn't understand it. When I got to first grade, that's when my classmates started talking about boyfriends and girlfriends and things like that. And that's when it really hit home for me. What I was, but... Like I said, none of the stories or media or anything I was exposed to ever had people of the same gender in a relationship with each other. Ever. I did try to talk to my parents about this as well, my mom. She said I was too young to even be thinking about things like that and that we were not having that discussion. She shut it down hard. So school would have been my only other place that I could have really gone to for any kind of context for what I was experiencing. I did actually get some context to school from the other kids. I don't know if they got the information from their older siblings, older kids at school, maybe even their parents. But it was the kind of information that would have to be cleaned up quite a bit just to make it suitable for a bathroom wall. 
it goes without saying that um, that it was prudent for me to not reveal myself to them to not let them know that I was who and what they were talking about really the emphasis is on what because the way they were discussing these things is not the way you talk about other human beings it's the way you talk about I don't know some kind of swamp creature Obviously, I didn't have the best opinion of myself at that time. Because I thought I was a freak. I thought I was an aberration. I thought something was wrong in me that wasn't wrong in anyone else ever. I thought I was the only one in the world until I found out from these other kids that there were others like me. And, well, being what I was and what they were, it was considered to be just about the worst thing you could ever be. It's a hell of a thing to be suicidal at eight years old, but I was. My dad liked to talk about strength and self-reliance, confidence. So I decided to uh, follow that example and, and suppress it overcome it, beat it, be who and what I was supposed to be. I was somewhat successful at it for a while. Um, my only real serious suicide attempt came when I was 16. After ditching school, I parked my car in my parents' garage and left the engine running with the door closed. I sneezed a, a bit for a while, but then I stopped. Coughed a little bit. But then I was just dizzy and started to feel light. Like my body was floating away. And then suddenly, the garage was flooded with light, blinding light. And I realized that the door had opened. My mom had forgotten her laptop at home. This is one of those big chunky things early on in the advent of laptops. I think it might have been a Toshiba satellite, about two or three inches thick about the same dimensions as a, an encyclopedia. Anyway, I won't tell you what happened after that door opened because that's not, here, not what we're here to talk about. That was my only real serious suicide attempt. It took a couple days, but I finally had a reaction to it. A panic attack when I realized what I had almost done. And I thought, I'll never do anything like that again. But then I realized that nothing had really changed. My mentality at the time was life was like a burning building and I needed to get out of it. Now this was, this was before 
So when I actually eventually did see the news coverage of the towers, well, I saw those people jumping. They were jumping to escape the flames, but they were also jumping to their death. And I felt the same way. Obviously, comparing my situation to theirs is, well, it's a disservice to them, but it also it did feel like getting out of my life would kill me, but so would staying in it. And I got really scared. And I thought, yeah, right now, maybe I'm thinking I will never do anything like that again, but what if, what if I have another one of those moments? Those moments where life seems like a burning building that I need to jump out of. It felt like my past, present, and future selves wanted different things, and they were going to, well, they were going to be in constant conflict each one wrestling to exert their will over our shared destiny. But I managed to stay alive. And uh, eventually I came out. But that took until I was in my mid-30s. After finding the body of a close friend of mine who had killed himself the very same way that I almost did, I realized that I needed to face who I was or I would end up just like him because he had never dated a guy or anything, but he was gay. His family would not have approved. I don't know how his other friends would have felt about it. I didn't really know them very well. But it was beaten into him that that was so bad that he could never be that. Luckily, around that time, I met my uh, first partner. He's the one who helped me get through it. Those first four years, ages six to nine, those years set the stage for everything that came after. I first started hating myself at age seven, and by the time I hit nine, which would be the, uh, the end of that range of the Don't Say Gay Bill, where teachers could finally, at least in some circumstances, provide some kind of context. Those four years were probably the most important of my life, and they were an absolute disaster because nobody helped me understand who I was and what I was. Everything would have been different. But the things the other kids said, which they were my only source of information, they, they created my self-image. But I don't blame those kids. I don't. I blame the adults. They failed us. 
They failed all of us, not just me. The adults failed them too, and I will tell you why. We've all witnessed situations where one person in a social group says something that the rest of the group recoils from. Something so egregious that the entire social group then has to reassess this person and maybe reject them entirely, never talk to them again, or at least be angry with them for a while. And then that person is standing alone, ostracized from their friends. Everybody's witnessed that. The thing is, every kid is going to encounter some member of the LGBT community in their life. Actually, guaranteed, it's going to be a lot more than one. And it's going to be sooner rather than later. And without some kind of context for them, they can end up in one of those social situations where their entire group of friends is on one page and they're on another. They say something that they don't even realize is homophobic. And the rest of their friends recoil in horror and maybe they don't even have those friends anymore. I mean, that is the fate that Florida is setting these kids up for. And anywhere else in the country that decides to create legislation like the Don't Say Gay Bill. first argument that Republicans use in favor of the Don't Say Gay Bill is that ages 6 through 9 are too early for kids to be learning about gay people, about trans people. I just told you why that's bullshit. The second argument they use is that it's only kindergarten through third grade, and that's also bullshit. It goes all the way through 12th grade, and here is why. The rest of that bill reads that uh, any parent who feels that their kid has been taught something that was inappropriate for their level of development, they can sue the teacher, they can sue the school. That is so vaguely worded that anything could be considered beyond what's appropriate for any kid's development. It's up to the parent to decide what's appropriate, and any right-wing parent is always going to decide that the only amount of acceptable material at any age of development is zero. So teachers just aren't going to gamble on that. They aren't going to take that chance. They're not going to risk losing their job. And they're not going to risk the school being sued and losing part of a budget that probably doesn't even meet the school and the students' needs anyway. So that provision pretty much guarantees that all the way through 12th grade, nothing about the existence of LGBT people is, is ever going to be taught. Then there's the third part of the bill, where if a teacher finds out that a student is in any way not straight, not cisgendered, that they are to report that to the kid's parents, 
to out that kid to the people that, oh, that kid is probably the most terrified to talk to about it. Especially in a devoutly religious household like my own. That's going to put a lot of kids in danger. There haven't been a lot of cases where kids have actually been murdered by their parents for coming out, but it has happened. But what's happened a lot more often are verbal and physical abuse. And this is just going to set these kids up for that exact thing. It's going to put them in danger, and that's a guarantee. So just to recap for a moment, I've covered why kindergarten through third grade is not too soon to teach kids about sexual orientation and gender identity. The second part was the other parts of the bill that make it so harmful. And now comes the third part why they are really doing this. As I said earlier, it's not about homophobia. Not really. The last president that Republicans put in office with a popular vote victory was George H.W. Bush in 1988. Yet, since 1988, Republicans have occupied the Oval Office for about half the time since then. And the reason that they've been able to do that is because we, the liberals, the left, the Democrats, progressives, whatever you want to call us, we are concentrated in the blue states, the blue cities, the population centers, leaving them almost complete control of the red states. Now, the red states, despite being smaller and less populated by far, they exert a much greater influence over both policy and the electoral college in proportion to their population. Every state gets two senators, no matter what. California, 38 million people, two senators. Kansas, a couple of million, two senators. So it's no mystery why policy has favored Republicans for so long. Now in the Electoral College, larger, more populated states do get more electoral votes. but not in proportion with their populations. Not even close. During the Civil Rights Movement, there was a mass migration of black people and also left-wing liberal people from the South and other red states to northern and coastal population centers, big cities, blue states. 
this is what created that advantage for them. Now, since the year 2000, cost of living has increased by 400%. That's right, it's five times what it was in the year 2000. And yet wages, average starting pay for anyone under the upper management level on the corporate ladder has only gone up about 8%. And this has driven a lot of liberals, a lot of left-wing progressive Democrat-type people out of those population centers back to the South. A large portion of the black community has been reverse migrating back to red states, back to the South. Over the past 15 years, it's estimated that that has led to about 4 million people moving to Georgia. That would be the state that shockingly turned blue in the 2020 election. So now, Republicans have shot themselves in the foot by collaborating with corporations to keep those pay rates as low as possible mainly by destroying unions, but that's a whole other conversation. Making sure that people are paid less almost forces them to move to places with a lower cost of living, and that has put a lot of Democrat voters back into red states. The Don't Say Gay Bill is their effort at damage control in that area to stop the flow of left-wing people, of liberals, of Democratic voters from returning to red states, returning to the South. Bills like the Don't Say Gay Bill, the Stop Woke Act, Ken Paxton's witch hunt of trans kids and their parents, and Missouri's bill, which would make it a death penalty offense for a woman to get an abortion in state or out of state. Policies like this make red states extremely hard to live in for people who are themselves not red. That is why they're doing this. Sure, they, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, they definitely hate us LGBT people. Sorry, LGBTQ. They hate us LGBTQ people, and that's for sure. The true believers do. But the people that are really behind it, the high-ranking Republicans and Republican legislators in Florida, that's not the reason they're doing this. Not out of hate, but out of fear. Fear that they'll lose power. They know that their, their ideas are not popular with most of the country. The vast majority of citizens in this country are not on their side. Now you would think that the unpopularity of their ideas would clue them in to the fact that maybe they don't know what's best for everyone. But no. They are so sure, so certain that they know what's best for America, that they are willing to subvert democracy to do it. They're willing to dismantle it entirely 
in order to make their agenda a reality. And if that means turning red states into unlivable hellholes for anybody who isn't a straight, white, Christian, racist, homophobe, that's what they'll do. While this reverse migration is a step in the right direction, not enough of us have yet moved back to the South and back to red states to reliably beat Republicans in election, uh, in elections, but we are headed in the right direction. In his book, The Devil You Know, Charles M. Blow talks about the mass migration of black people back to the South. And he believes that states like Mississippi, Arkansas, and Delaware are going to be the next red states to turn blue due to this migration, but here's the thing. I moved away from a red state for my own safety, physically, psychologically. A lot of other people did too, and that's why I would never criticize someone for not wanting to move to a red state. That's something I, I just wouldn't be able to do, wouldn't be willing to do. But for those who are willing to do that, well, they definitely have my gratitude. The only thing that sucks is it's, well, I've had a few people move away from here that I was close to and move to red states due to cost of living, but also for these exact political reasons. And well, I'm sad to see them go. I was sad to see them go, and I still miss them, but they're making a difference. It's not something that I'm going to be able to do because I feel like I've done my time. I did a lot of damaging years in that place, and if I only had two choices, either moving in with my parents or going homeless and having to live in my car or even just on the street without one. I choose the street. Not out of fear, but because I know being homeless would actually be less damaging than going back. Lucky for me, I'll never have to face that choice because I have a, a good support system here. I have my partner, his family, my friends, and I have a solid career. And so does my partner. So, luckily I, well, lucky for me, I won't have to do that, but that is the choice for a lot of people. A lot of LGBTQ people who have moved away from the red states they grew up in. If their life doesn't go according to plan, if they go through a, you know, a nasty separation, or if they just need some time to reset, they can't go home. They can't go to their parents. That support system isn't there for them.
Not if they want to stay sane. And that's another thing they're doing to us by making red states unlivable. Making any part of the country unlivable for certain people. Now that's... That's really the signature move of the Republican Party, isn't it? The thing that really kind of confounds me about people who are willing to be part of an effort like this, to create bills like Don't Say Gay, to make certain parts of the country unlivable for certain people, you only get one life. You only get one go around on this thing. And at the end, maybe you just blink out, or maybe you go somewhere where you have a chance to reflect on your choices. And maybe even be judged for them. If it were me, I'd be very concerned about going to my final destination and having to look back and see that this, this was what I devoted my life to. Not to do things to find fulfillment, to make myself happy, to create something that endures. To make things better, but to do this. Because here's the thing, no noble goal, no noble cause ever takes the form, <clears throat> excuse me, no noble cause ever takes the form of hurting and killing innocent people, ruining innocent people's lives, people who never did anything to them. Nobody that was doing something that was for the greater good has ever gone about it in a way that would cause that kind of thing, because... The fact that you have to go about it that way means your cause is wrong. If you have to lie, cheat, steal, ruin lives, kill people, you're definitely not on the side of the angels, and that's for sure. And yet, in the people that are willing to do these things, I see no self-reflection, no self-awareness, and no concern about their final judgment. And yet these are supposed to be Christians, God-fearing people. They don't seem very afraid. That's all I'm saying. <laughs>